Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Um, as you know, in each episode of this podcast, I read some of the works by Robert A. Heinlein pretty much chronologically, working my way through the, the novels and short stories. And we have made it all the way to 1954, and there is only one publication uh, that we need to work on for this year, and that is The Star Beast. Uh, yeah, The Star Beast. So the, the cover says The Star Beast, but the, the, the title page just says Star Beast. So I don't know the rules on that. But anyways, um, I was not really, you know, that excited to read this novel initially. I thought, well, it looks kind of weird. The cover, one of the covers I saw looks like a kid riding a, a dinosaur, which I knew would be some sort of alien. And I'm like, well, well maybe this is not going to be one of his best juveniles but it actually i think it's my favorite i read it very qu quickly in just over a day um i i did the audiobook so it was at a, a slightly faster rate i think 1.25 or something but i but i did get through it in a single day and i just gobbled it up and i'm really really impressed with this novel for a, for a couple of reasons one is it's just good science fiction it takes this topic of of like taking an alien as a pet, bringing him back to Earth, and does so much with it, uh, with the timeline of him being a pet, the the, the interspecies interactions, the, the the kind of the first contact moments here are great. the The twist is, you know, it's not brilliant. It, it's if you read a lot of Heinlein, it's something you maybe kind of su suspected, but it's good. It's it's the most distinctive so far of the juveniles because I've, I've kind of complained that the, the boys are kind of interchangeable in a lot of the, 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 these juvenile novels that we've read and that they all seem to hinge, the, the drama of the story hinges on something external to the, the central plot. Like you'll have a, a plot going on and that will be very important and interesting and then there'll be like need to be some action scene and it'll usually involve someone getting lost somewhere. Um, and usually our main character getting lost and then being saved um, or something else like that. It's, there's variance on it, but it, it was kind of the same in all the juveniles. And they were all involving a, a young man going into space to some degree, right? Why, why they go to space, the, the situation is always different, but, but that's basically the plot. And the, the, the first seven all have that in common. This one doesn't do any of that. It's set entirely on Earth. That's the, the first great thing about this. Um, and I guess our character does go to space at the end, but we don't see it. It's just like, after, you know, if there's a sequel, it's him in space. So it is about him going to space, but it doesn't actually, you don't actually see it happen. It's all on Earth. It's, and it's our, I think it's our first sort of memorable protagonist where we have a real, like, character arc for the, 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 the main protagonist that makes him like the least forgettable, right? Now, not that the others didn't have some, but I think there's a lot more thought put into the character arc for this one. Um, it's a lot more compelling. 
Now, I'd still say the side characters, like in this case, it's Betty and Lummox and, um, and the, the ambassador guy, Kiku. Those characters are more, still more memorable than our, our, you know, our main boy that we're, John, his name is John Thomas Stewart XI. Uh, the name comes up a lot, John Thomas Stewart XI. He's part of a long family of, of the same name. Uh, and a pretty notorious family. In fact, his, his, I think it's his great-grandfather. Was it? His, uh, yeah, I think his great-grandfather was the one who brought Lummox. And then some generation before was some essentially revolutionary dictator on Mars. Uh, so he's, he's, he's got kind of a family legacy that he has to like work through. And, and that's what gives his character its kind of special, his special characteristics because he's trying to live up to... Uh, family history um, that makes it more memorable than some of the other characters but I still think the others are more well drawn and more interesting and and I still think that maybe the weak point in the in the story but what he does what Heinlein does with this is really great this is a wonderful uh, novel and I think it it almost makes the other juveniles not redundant because they're doing very different things but um, I think this has so much in it. It has maybe the romance element is a little rushed. Um, and of course, he doesn't have to go to space because we kind of can lay out what his future is going to be. Uh, and he, he isn't going to be, he's going to live up to his family name at the end. That's what we're told. Of course, the focus of the book is the star beast itself, Lummox. Um, I'll, I'll probably, I'll, I'll try to remember to call Lummox a she, although this alien species has like six genders so i don't think you can really i think she and he and there's a character who's really confused by the the pronouns too which i guess is interesting as well because um you know heinlein is the most kind of experimental in in gender and sex stuff of, of any of the golden era science fiction writers as far as i know he's the most like revolutionary in this respect and we don't see it in a lot of the juvenile novels we see it in some of the the adult writings and sometimes it's very vulgar like with oh we need to have everyone naked so the puppet masters don't get us that that kind of stuff and the the nudism that we see in like door into summer and in some of the earlier works revolt in 2100 had a lot of just you know nudism for, for why not right there's that stuff, but there is the more like thoughtful commentary on, on sexuality and gender that we get in things like I Will Fear No Evil um, and, of course, in Stranger in a Strange Land. And I think this novel shows some of that, too, with the very least with, with suggesting there's not in space, there's not just going to be two genders or two sexes. There might be species with multiple sexes or, or maybe just one, right? I know there's, I don't know if Heinlein ever explored that, but... Heinlein is very interested in this and, you know, you know, maybe, maybe if he was alive today, he, I'm sure if he was alive today, he would be uh, comrades with the, with, with the trans rights movement. I'm pretty convinced of that. But uh, even though he's got that reputation as being a kind of conservative and some people even say a fascist, uh, I think that's, I don't see it myself. I, I do see the kind of the Americanism and the, the conservatism that's kind of tied up in his vision of America from our point of view. But I think there's a lot of other stuff going on in Heinlein that is hard to kind of 
put them in one box. Now, I'm just kind of getting started here. I think another really interesting thing in uh, the Star Beast is the Kiku character, who is only meets our main character at the end of the story. He's a he's it's just as important of the plot. It's like there's basically like two you know two stories going on at the same time, and then they meet um, in the second half of the story. But he is the he's like the undersecretary for uh, a department of of spatial affairs. It's, it's a weird name. At, at first, I'm thinking it's like well, dealing with space, some spatial affairs. That makes sense. Um, so it's the basically the the diplomatic office for 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 space. Um, we. The implication here is that we sort of have a one-world government, um, which we've seen in other Heinlein work, so that's not new. And this is set sometime after the events of of like a Starman Jones, right, where we start to get confident FTL, right? We've we've already had that here. A uh, little less focus on the technology, like 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 we do in Space Starman Jones. Here, it's much more on the diplomacy. And the interacting between species, so that uh, that's done through this character of, of Kiku, um, who is you know high rank. He's 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 a career bureaucrat under the uh, appointed ones, but the highest ranking non-appointed bureaucrat in this Department of Spatial Affairs, and he's um, managing the a, a, a diplomatic crisis. At the same time, he's coming to be aware of this very local issue about Lummox. And, and I think that's done really well, too, in this story, how we start with something that's kind of local, and there's a local politics about Lummox and his actions and his, his place. And, if, you know, if, should, we, should we have pets, alien pets? Is that safe? Right? Um, and then it becomes connected to the larger diplomatic issues in a kind of obvious way. But again, I think it's it's pretty well done, and and the reader doesn't really know how it all fits together until halfway into the novel. I think. So that's it. Now I know someone might say, "Well, this is just rehashing uh, Willis," and in some ways it is. Like the fact that the adult and the the child look differently, um, that we have like an alien child being raised by humans. But I would argue that these are very different stories than Red Planet. And although you can see elements of the Willis narrative here, especially in the conceit at the end that these that this thing you thought was just a dumb pet alien that can kind of talk uh, is actually an intelligent, sentient creature of a species we don't understand. Right? That's more or less the same. But I think the Martians and and the Hiroshi, these aliens, this that look like dinosaurs with eight legs. T-Rexes with eight legs is what they look like. Um, but the, the Hiroshi are not like the Martians in, in other ways. I guess in their indifference to humanity, there are parallels, but I do think it's done much better than Willis was done. And we learn more about the Hiroshi than we do about the, the Martians in that story. All right, so, ah, what a, what a good book, what a good book. I hope they keep getting better. I. Um, you know, I think I've been I've been saying they, they do get seem to get better. And then I was like, Starman Jones wasn't, I think, better than the Rolling Stones. But the Star Beast kind of blows them all the way. 
in my view. Maybe it's just the themes I'm really into, um, I'm really interested in. But um, hopefully it keeps going. We got four more of these to do, and I don't know anything about those, those four. So I hope they're great. So chapter one, I'll look at the first eight chapters, let you know what's going on. I'll highlight some of the main points. I actually took pretty careful notes this time. So the first chapter is called L Day, and it's all from Lummox's POV. Um, so right away, we're being told by the author that all these questions about his sentience, or her sentience, I should say. I'll, I'll try to get the pronouns right for them, but the book swaps. So Lummox is a he through much of the book, and then at the end is a she, just because we learn more about the species, this alien. Um, Actually, a lot of what's revealed later on explicitly is hinted at here. For instance, we're told that Lummox has a chum, a close associate named John Thomas Stewart. We'll learn later it's John Thomas Stewart the 11th. And he says, like, there's always going to be another John Thomas Stewart. Now, when you first read this, you think, is this just going to be like another owner, like a pet has an owner, and then there's going to be another owner later on. Obviously, that's not usually the way it works. Usually it works. You have one owner will have several pets over the course of their life, right? There will always be a, like my, my family was Shelties for whatever preposterous reason. There will always be another uh, Sheltie. Um, but so that's already telling us what we already find out, what we find out at the end of the story, which is that Lummox, at least in Lummox's mind, is raising John Thomas Stewart's as sort of like how a child might raise dolls or or take care of a of, a, of an animal, right? Maybe an animal is a better example. But how young uh, Lummox is is betrayed by the fact that Lummox is at least a hundred years old, right? Because we know Lummox was brought by John Thomas Stewart's great grandfather 100 years or like 110 years earlier, later on we learned that Lummox when it was taken was already 200 years old. So after 300 years, Lummox is still a, an, like a small child, a toddler, essentially, not even growing her arms yet. Her arms come at the end of the story or midway through the story, showing that Lummox has matured um, to such a point that finally growing arms, which of course is an important point. I, I I don't want to miss it, so I'll mention it now. The, the point about that is, like, under human law, because there's a lot of aliens on Earth, there's a lot of interactions with other planets, it's well into the era of interstellar space travel and interactions. We have a Department of Spatial Affairs that's dealing with all these thousands of aliens on Earth and their diplomatic affairs with their home countries. So there's law about this kind of stuff, and one is that if you have arms, that's an implication of sentience. And if you don't have arms, that's an implication of your animal. The idea being you need to have hands to have the higher level brain functions. And I think there's some evidence in, in evolution to imply that there's an association with our bigger brains and our cognitive processes with um, bipedalism and, and the use of hands. Right? Bipedalism, of course, the implication is having hands that we could use for tool making and whatever. Uh, what came first, I, I don't know. That's for the evolutionists to figure out, the evolutionary biologists to figure out. Um, but anyways, um, Lummox, though, even though we learn right away that she's raising John Thomas Stewart's, sort of, even though it's not fully revealed until later, 
and that she's sentient, we also know we're kind of dealing with a child because Lamex is interested in her belly, makes irrational choices at times, um, not very disciplined. Um, the voice actually is, we're told, is, is like a girl's voice, and the audiobook makes it sound very much like a, a young, like a, like a toddler female. Um, but Lomix just is kind of hungry and wants to go out of her cage, and so she does, and she kind of ends up on a rampage throughout town. And this is this chapter is called L Day, Lomix Day, I guess is is what we get, and and he gets in a little bickering bickering with the local bully dog. A um, lot of evidence here of how how just sentient. Um, Lamex is. Then we shift to John Thomas Stewart, the 11th point of view, returning from, um, I think, seeing Betty, his girlfriend. And he's about ready to prepare for university. So he's about the age group of the other uh, boys we get in these novels. And he finds his mom's upset. And his mom's upset because Lamex has uh, ran wild and destroyed a bunch of property and got involved with the police and did a bunch of damage, ruined people's greenhouses, ate the prized roses of, of Miss Donahue, the neighbor. Um, and he eventually gets the news about Lummox and the damage and the police involvement and all that. Um, we also learn in this chapter that Lummox seems to, doesn't need to eat, um, but when he eats, can eat anything. So can eat rocks, can eat metal, can eat grass, can eat trees, wood, as well as normal food. And at one point, Lomax ate a car, like like a like an old Buick or something. And this, I don't I don't know the the model, but became huge after that. Started growing because Lomax started out like the size of a dog, and was that way for a long time, and then started essentially being overfed. We also learned that John Thomas Stewart's father's dead, so he's the heir. And this is important to his character. He's the heir to this John Thomas Stewart line. Uh, he's the 11th. A lot of pressure right there to have a son if you're the 11th in the line. Um, we also learned that his girlfriend, Betty, is kind of like a paralegal or studying to be in law. And she's uh, willing to provide kind of her legal protection. We also learned that Lummox is able to be controllable um, through the Cross My Heart. If you can tell Lummox to say cross my heart, she will obey that. She doesn't break a cross my heart vow. So she thinks kind of as a toddler, um, as a young, as a child, but, you know, is potentially like, that's the thing. We, we even though, like if you have a, an animal for 100 years in the family and it, it never really matures, you're going to think this is its peak. This is as far as it can go, right? But you don't realize that they have a lifespan that's essentially infinite by our our standards. So anyways, a lot unpacked. Um, and then we flip to the Department of Spatial Affairs in Chapter 2. Um, and and the this is a really fascinating introduction here. Um, and even now, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, Maybe it's just about like the perspective of, I think that's what it is, it's the perspective of, of people working, or at least of Kiku, um, but also the different people who work in the Department of Spatial Affairs. To John Thomas Stewart XI, the troubles of himself and Lummox seemed unique and unbearable, yet he was not alone, even around Westville. 
Little Mr. Ito was suffering from an almost fatal disease old age. It would kill him soon. Behind uncounted closed doors at Westville, other persons suffered silently from countless forms of quiet desperation, which can close in on a man or a woman for reasons or money, family, health, or face. Mr. Ito is one of the neighbors who has his greenhouse destroyed by Lummox. So here, these are a lot of the idea of like the local concerns, the independent concerns. And that's the whole point of the book in a way is the local versus the, the interstellar in a way. Anyways, farther away in the state capitol, the governor stared hopelessly at a stack of papers, evidence that would certainly send to prison his oldest and most trusted friend. Much farther away on Mars, a prospector abandoned his wrecked sandmobile and got ready to attempt a long trek back to the outpost. He would never make it. Inconceivable, incredibly farther away, 27 light years, the starship Bolivar was entering an interspatial transition. A flaw in a tiny relay would cause that relay to open a tenth of a second later than it should. The SS Bolivar would wander between stars for many years, but she would never find her way home. Inconceivably farther from Earth, halfway across the local star cloud, a race of arboreal crustaceans was slowly losing to a younger, more aggressive race of amphibians. It would be several thousand Earth years before the crustaceans were extinct, but the issue was not in doubt. This was regrettable by human standards, for the crustacean race had mental and spiritual abilities which complemented human traits in a fashion that could have permitted a wealth of civilized cooperation with them. But when the first human Earth humans landed there, some 11,000 years in the future, the crustaceans would be long dead. End quote. So it's, it's like how we conceive of time. And the Department of Spatial Affairs, we're, we're being implied here, thinks in those long terms, thinks with the clock of the long now, if you will. And so we meet the Right Honorable Henry Gladstone Kiku, M.A. Oxon. I don't know where that is. Um, he's got a, 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 like a, is this an honorary doctorate from Cape Town? OBE, Permanent Undersecretary for Spatial Affairs. That's his, like his, his, his title and names is like three lines or four lines in the book. Um, and we just kind of learn about him. And, and I think it's, it's um, pretty nice. I mean, we learned he's just his job is to deal with the aliens. Um, he's incredibly logical. He's incredibly, incredibly meticulous in how he thinks through things. He... He's very much a kind of Star Trek The Next Generation kind of figure. We're not the admirals, right, who are always kind of corrupt. He's the, right. Yeah, I was reading that Trekonomics book years ago, and they, the author there was saying, like, old Star Trek was Heinlein and new Star Trek is Asimov. But I see a lot of Heinlein in, new Star, in, in Next Generation, not new New Star Trek, but Next Generation stuff. But Kiku's very much like a next generation kind of character. You know, very rational, thinking, thinking things through. Very much dedicated and to their, and this is a federation, that's actually called their part of a federation. Dedicated to the politics of that, of, you know, very loyal, but also very objective and open-minded to other, other, other species. And he has his own character quirks. Like he's scared of snakes and he has to see a psychiatrist. Um, that's all interesting stuff. So anyways, he gets, he, he's, he's got to meet with this Dr. Fatemel. So Dr. Fatemel is another character that's going to be very important. He's a Rigalian. They're another species, and they have the Medusa head. And Kiku has to work out his anxieties over, over snakes with a psychiatrist before he can work with Dr. Fatemel. But Dr. Fatemel will turn out to be very important for the story because his race, his species, I should say, is very much interested in other cultures and learning languages and is very focused on language. And 
that makes them, and he, he, he takes on work for Kiku as like a translator. And so he becomes very important for uh, Kiku that this guy, if Dr. Fatemo, is able to communicate with uh, Hiroshi, who is the species that Lummox is, but no one knows this at this point, right? Now, Kiku gets news about the issue with Lummox, but then it's just like a little blurb, right? Like, oh, like something that a gov government bureaucrat would get if it's anywhere relevant to his office. Since he deals with aliens, both international relations or interplanetary relations with those aliens and the, you know, alien residents on Earth, he got news that some alien went berserk in some small town. So he sends Sergei, Sergei Greenberg, he just sends a dude. Now, Sergei Greenberg is kind of an interesting character, but he's just sent to deal with this to, to, to be as a fact-finding mission, right? Find out what's going on, make sure there's nothing up with this. Um, so in the first two chapters, we're kind of introduced to all our major players. The next chapter is called An Improper Question. And this is, it starts from um, Greenberg's point of view. But basically, he's, um, he goes to the town. And, and basically, from the this and the next few chapters, we're basically going to be looking at like the local politics of Lummox and how to deal with the fact that Lummox seems to be a dangerous alien in this small town. And it's too big. She, no one can control her and, and all that. And so basically, our, you know, John Thomas... Stewart has got like a court summons to, to, for a hearing about Lummox. Now, I do want to point out something I've noticed with Heinlein, but I haven't, I don't know if I mentioned it before, maybe in passing, but there's a scene here where he has to have a big breakfast. This teenage boy has to have a big breakfast to function. <laughs> um, and I've noticed it, Mr. Heinlein. I've noticed you and food. You have a lot of characters who need to have big breakfasts or big lunches or a big dinner before they can think clearly and before they can do anything. It's again and again. And I didn't make a list of all of them, but it's this is probably like the seventh time in these books and stories I've read where, I mean, even it was the case, I think, in uh, Between Planets, where a character had to have a big meal before doing something. Like they can't function without a meal. And I often skip meals. I'm fine. Um, I just think this is you, Heinlein. I think you need the big, the full American, that disgusting 2,000-calorie American breakfast that people sometimes eat, but I can't believe it, right? I think, I think it's Heinlein here. Yeah. Now, maybe someone else out there can confirm this for me, but he, I've seen pictures of him. He doesn't seem to be fat. He seems to be, like, stout, I guess, but... Anyways, I'll, I'll leave that drop. Just, just letting you know I've noticed this about, about him. And if this is a, a, already a meme, a well-known meme about Heinlein, uh, I'm, I've never heard it before, but I do, I'm on board. I know this. I'm aware of this. Um, so now we, we kind of know Heinlein seems, from this, Heinlein seems to not think that much of courts and doesn't seem to respect them. And I think that's a theme in this book too is like, when you have courts, you have like people at that local level making decisions, and those decisions are always going to be wrong. Like courts are kind of incapable of making good decisions, I think, in his view. Uh, I guess there's the one case with the Rolling Stones or the, the, 
the it's the Martian court lets him go because he didn't pay his taxes. The character didn't pay his like import duties or whatever. But I I think he's a little uh, down on on the courts, at least the local, like the local versus the the national. And again, that's that's I think runs contrary to his kind of reputation as a conservative because he seems to believe in bigger institutions, right? He, he, he has these ideas of one-world governments. And there's a whole rant here, I guess, kind of from Kiko's point of view about how it's the bureaucrats who actually have to make the tough decisions. It's the politicians just put spin on it and, and sell it. And, and they're not the ones who actually have to do things. And sometimes society works better if we just kind of pass the keys over to the professionals. Now, now I think in reality, there, there has to be like some kind of balance to that, right? And I think we have a pretty good one, actually, where presidents appoint leaders of departments, but the actual knowledge that can get stuff done is, is still in the, the career staff. It's, I guess you could call it a deep state, but you sort of need it, right? Okay. Anyways, now, a couple of things, developments with Lummox before they go to the trial. One is uh, Lummox has these sensitive swellings on her, on what they're going to be her arms, but at the uh, Stewart. John Thomas thinks they might be like tumors or some illness. Remember, he still thinks Lummox is an old, like an old dog, right? Like hundred, like a hundred years old. We also know that Betty's kind of got ideas on how to defend John Thomas, uh, primarily by homesteading Lummox, by making Lummox a homestead, like like a tool of the trade kind of thing, exempt from liens and therefore defended from from being killed. They're trying to save Lomax's life because the fear is not so much the money, which of course the paying the damages is one thing, but if, you know, like if your dog runs amok and does some property damage, you're responsible for that, but it's, it's you, you, you know, you don't want that dog killed, right? It's seen as a threat and has to be put down. You might be willing to pay the fine, but not see it dead. And so by putting a homestead exemption on Lummox, you'd say that this is actually more of a tool of my trade or something or property that I need essential to my to my career or whatever. Basically like a like like if someone bashes someone with a like with my tool, with my hammer, like they don't destroy the hammer, right? It's it's still my property. I got thanks just I don't know the law behind it. I mean I'm ignorant. But Anyways, we get a little bit more here about uh, his desire to be a xeno um, xeno linguist, someone who studies for, and that's going to be an important point later on. Um, we learn a little bit more too about his ancestor, who is uh, this Martian kind of Lenin, <laughs> a, a Martian Lenin, which I don't think this is in the future history, but I, I want that story about like Martian Lenin, uh, who kind of becomes a a bit of a dictator, but leads a revolution and is a great hero. I don't know how you have an ancestor like that and don't live on Mars. Like at some point, uh, his, his, his like son says, oh, I'm not going to stay on Mars. I'm going to go back to Earth, even though like I'm part of like the royal family. Um, and now we're just living in the suburbs. It's like I don't quite know what happened to the family, why, why they're not living in palaces on Mars. Um, but anyways, this, that's fine. Um, definitely, I think there's stuff here on, on Heinlein's views on, on law, which are interesting. Um, anyways, 
By the end of chapter three, though, we know there's a deep danger to Lummox, that if this trial goes bad, then he could be killed. And then chapter four, Prisoner at the Bars, is a really funny chapter. It's our court proceedings where Heinlein proceeds to totally mock the, the justice system on, um, on Earth, or this local justice system, um, where it's kind of a farce. It's kind of a, the, the comedic part of the, of the book, I suppose, where we have like a, they actually have a, a lie detector there and like the witnesses against Lummox are all like making that thing go crazy because they're all lying, but they're exaggerating their pain and suffering they felt from Lummox's like reign of terror. It's um, pretty funny stuff. Um, but eventually we have uh, Betty provides a pretty solid defense, but she's also very emotional. And she, uh, the ish, she compares Lummox to a well, no, she brings up the issue of sentience. And, and the judge actually is thinking in his internal monologue at this point, like, Betty, you kind of screwed this up because I had a way out for you where you just pay the damages, right? But if you bring up that, that Lummox is sentient, that opens up all sorts of new questions and it's going to make the trial longer and it's just going to complicate his life. More paperwork for him, right? More, more hearings. But once she brought it up, that kind of becomes a new question, like, is... Is this a, a sentient creature? Um, but eventually we do get, um, so that's, there's a pin put in that question. But the, the, ultimately what happens is there's no chattel. So if he's sentient, he can't be chattel, he can't be owned. So that kind of complicates the question, right? So if Lummox is sentient, then it's more like if your child does something, you know, to what degree are you responsible for that? Um, there are damages, there are, but there's no like, um, wow. what's the name for the damages? Like the puni like punitive damages, there's none of those. There's only the real damages, which are going to be taken up by the Department of Spatial Affairs because they have an interest in Lummox. Um, but really, it's like, is Lummox property of government? That question is posed too, because if he was taken from another planet on, a ex on an official expedition, then he's the property of Earth. So a lot of interesting legal stuff by the end of this chapter, even though mostly it's kind of a humorous satire of, of legal cases. Um, now, throwing a wrench into the whole thing is at the end of this chapter, we move to Lummox's point of view, and Lummox is worried about John Thomas Stewart, and Lummox like, barges in in the courtroom, again, kind of reminding everyone there that Lummox is dangerous. Um, so next we move to um, chapter five, a matter of viewpoint, which is all from the point of view of, of Kiku. And, and we're going to spend some time now from Kiku's point of view in his bureaucratic world. And it's fascinating to be in this mind of this bureaucrat working out complicated diplomatic issues, dealing with the life and death of every human being on Earth, dealing with all these different affairs, all these different alien races and these legal matters and popular opinion, right? There's like cult movements, like the Keep Earth Human movement. There's the Friends of Lummox movement that's also established. There's his own personal quirks, like he doesn't want to, he's not a very public figure. He's not a politician, he doesn't want to go in front of the camera. Um, that's offered up at one point. Um, but he also... We also see him be an administrator and a, and a boss where he, 
Greenberg comes back and he has to deal with the fact that even though Greenberg is someone he wants to see rise up in the movement or in the in the department and be part of, you know, maybe replace him someday because Kiku's getting kind of old. He also is very honest about Kiku, about Greenberg's mistakes with the Lummox case, that he should have uh, had a more hands-on approach to it, uh, not just left the local authorities run with that, that trial. And Greenberg's like, well, I didn't have authority. That wasn't the role of the department. But the way he manages this, it's just like a good, competent manager. Again, totally fantasy to have a good, competent manager. But... Um, we learn that um, there's there's like a time gap. So we learn that Lamex is going to be killed probably by this local court. The courts come down on ultimately deciding that Lamex has to die for the safety of the, of the community. Um, is that here a little bit later? It doesn't matter. That is what eventually happens. Um, So also in this chapter, we're introduced to the Hiroshi, who we learn later on are Lummox's people, but they're claiming that Earth has one of their, basically like princesses, living on Earth, and they want her back. And if they don't, they're going to destroy Earth, or there's going to be some consequences. I don't think it's clear at this point that they're going to threaten to destroy Earth, but this is what he's got to deal with. Now, he doesn't quite piece together that the Hiroshi and Lummox are the same, because they look different. Lummox is huge and the Hiroshi aren't. And we've never had contacts with them before. Um, so in chapter six, we basically see him meeting with uh, Fatemal, that Dr. Fatemal. And this chapter, chapter six, Space's Deep Excellency is mostly about that relationship between them. And this Dr. Fatemal has knowledge about the Hiroshi about their intelligence and all that. So we, we learn more about the Hiroshi from this other alien that had longer contacts with them. Now, the Regalians, who Dr. Fatemo is part of, are very gossipy. They're very, uh, um, they're very uh, interested in, they, they learn about other species because they're very curious about them, but they also come off as very gossipy and talking about others. And they're really an interesting species. We only get one example of them for this one character, but the way they're presented, it's really kind of a fascinating um, species. I kind of wish reading this that Star Trek had sometimes put more thought into their aliens who are just like, they look different, but there's not always, there's always there's something special about them, but you don't get like a personality often with them. Um, or at least that's not developed. Here, there's something about the Brigalians. They just seem kind of curious and jolly and always ready to kind of stick their nose into things, even if it puts them at risk and, um, and kind of finding humor in things. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to describe, but they're, it's really well characterized species, even though it's just through one character. Um, now, the Hiroshi are saying, definitely humans took one of ours. And so the Regalians say, well, maybe since they're so far away, like, thousand light years away or something. Humans never got that far, so how could this be? And then this Fatemal says, well, maybe there's two species of humans. It's like, or another human-like species developed somewhere else and took them, took her. And that's played with for a while, which is an interesting, fascinating idea too. Like, there's, if, if there are really that many civilizations out there and 
you know, evolution on a certain type of planet would, you know, tend to lead in the same direction. Like bipedalism is an example of that, right? It's actually dealt with in the text here that sentient creatures have arms and maybe not walk on two legs, but they need free arms to do that, to manipulate tools and therefore develop higher brain capacity. Um, wouldn't that be the same everywhere? This justifies like why every alien in, in science fiction is like humanoid. But anyways, that's a whole other issue. But it doesn't really go anywhere because that's not actually what happened. But um, so the next chapter, Mother Knows Best, is we learn it's basically about uh, John Thomas Stewart's mother siding with the killing of Lummox. And we find out just how much she hated Lummox and she thought Lummox was a burden imposed on her by her family, by her husband, um, who inherited it from his father and from his grandfather. And it was kind of like a family burden. And she's prioritizing John Thomas Stewart going to college. Very myopic in the context of what we have here in the story. But we kind of understand it, I suppose. The chapter is literally called Mother Knows Best, but she's not presented as a very pot and, like thoughtful character. She just like doesn't like Lummox. She doesn't want to take care of her anymore and just is using this opportunity to, to support the court's decision to have him, have her, I mean, to have Lummox <coughs> put down. And there's even, we hear reports about how they tried to do this by drowning and doing other things, shooting couldn't do it so they still have to figure out how to kill Lummox um, so John Thomas Stewart here decides okay well if this is the way it's going to be I'll like maybe I can sell Lummox to the Natural History Museum and that's actually seriously considered here now other events get in the way to stop that but he thinks well if I sell Lummox to the museum Maybe I can even get a job at the museum. And he, he thinks about that and says, if they're going to offer me a job and I can continue to stay with Lummox, I'm going to do it. The mom is horrified by this and tries to stop it. Now, halfway through the book, we get this chapter, The Sensible Thing to Do. Now, I've read that this was not included in like an early, the early uh, serialized version of this story. And that's a, it's a shame because this is the central character moment for John um, John Thomas Stewart, because here he basically decides what to do. And he realizes that if he just works at the museum, sells Lummox, or lets Lummox be, be killed, he's just going to be like any other human. He's not going to live up to his namesake. So this chapter just involves him looking through the old records of his family and the generations that came before him. We get a little bit of a family history. You know, actually, there's a lot of space here that Heinlein could have written, like, other stories about this family because they seem fascinating. They have the Martian dictator. Uh, they have the guy on the trailblazer, right, the, the, which is the ship that picked up Lummox, right, from these aliens. There's, there's him. There's other great people in this family history. And this is Heinlein, right? If you know Heinlein's family history, you you know this, right? that he comes from a long line of, of American military figures, right? Going back to early America. So from the Wikipedia, he was a sixth-generation German-American. A family tradition had it that Heinlein's fought in every American war starting with the War of Independence. Um, and, of course, he served... Uh, 
in the Navy and didn't get to fight in the war. And during the war, during World War II, he was uh, like pointing out laser be laser rays or something for the for the Pentagon and didn't make anything. So he's the first to kind of not follow this tradition. So to some degree, I think this is Heinlein being anxious about, you know, his own his own legacy, or at least John Thomas Stewart is in a Heinlein's kind of situation about like, how can I make sure like the family name is respected and, and lived on? And how do I make sure there's a John Thomas Stewart the 12th and all that? So it's an important chapter. It's very short, but I think it it's central to his character. So in the next episode, I'll talk about chapters nine through 17, the second half of the book. It's, Actually, I've done more than half of the book, actually, if you look at page count. but um, And that really deals with the resolution of these, these, these tensions and, and all that. So anyways, like I said early on, I think this is a great book. I think it's definitely the best of the juveniles that I've read so far. And I got to stop judging books by their cover because I, I'm not that impressed with like Tunnel in the Sky or Citizen of the Galaxy or these other covers either. Um, so... I'll have to like, you know, I hopefully I'll be as happy about those four upcoming juveniles as I am with this one, because I think this one's really strong. So um, I'll leave it at that. I'll give you my final thoughts about the Star Beast in the next episode, but I, I can't imagine I'll say anything that's less than unqualified praise for, for this great book. Um, anyways, that's it for now. Let me know what you think of the Star Beast. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.